This is Coda Radio, episode 297 for February 19th, 2018. everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Why me? Thank you for asking. My name is Chris, but that's not who we care about. No, my friends, it's our host. He joins us every week. It's Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike. Привет, comrade Chris. <laughs> How is the indictment working out so far? Everything going okay? You got the lawyers all locked in? Uh, you know what? Uh, my, my good friend uh, Bob Mueller did come to visit me. Yes, he does. He ha- had a few choice words regarding uh, obstruction of uh, Justin. Yeah, yeah, Justin. <laughs> Justin, this is a lot. Lo- this is a land of Justin, and you have obstructed him. So you get in- uh, apparently. Yeah, and my good friend Jared. You know, a lot of stress. My friends Jared, uh, Michael Flynn. We're all a little, little tense these days. People tell me. People tell me this. Yeah, people tell me this. Well, Mr. Dominic, perhaps we can help you relax like a nice back massage. It's another edition of the Coda Radio program. Now still in its young 200s, you know, we're about to uh, cross over to 300 threshold uh, where very many shows, very few shows escape the 300 line. Let's see if you know, we're going to 600. It. You heard it here first. <laughs> you got to beat last, huh? <laughs> That's my goal. All right. Well, we have um, kind of a feedback extravaganza episode. Lots of questions and emails that came into the show. We've got some great hoops to get into uh, later on. This is uh, our last show that we're recording ever before Mike leaves uh, to go to the O'Reilly Conference in New York. So we'll have an, a bit of a different schedule next week. We'll be a little bit later in the week. Um, we'll try to remember to update the calendar page if you want to join us live. Bruno's here this week live. That's it. We have Br- Bruno. Bruno. Bruno is here, which is great because uh, last week we had we had a real pop in live stream. Lots of people here. This week, Bruno's here, and that's it. So thank you, Bruno. Well, you know, it, it's like we took Bruno into the champagne room. I, you know what? How embarrassing would this be? Because you know what I like to think about the live stream a little bit is I like to think about it like if you and I were at like a venue – and we were filling tables. Then all of a sudden, like 50, 60 people is a lot of people, right? If you're filling tables. Yeah. And so like – and sometimes during last, you know, it would be like a thousand people watching live. You think about it. That's like that's like a theater, that's right? Often. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so – but today it's Bruno. So we're doing a show for Bruno and then uh, the uh, tens of thousands of people who download. <laughs> uh, Bruno let, and his, you know, favorite – and it's some of his friends a little later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah so <laughs> – all right, well, let's start, uh, let's start with the emails. A bunch of people went over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, uh, chose Coda Radio from the dropdown, sent in this, like, Christian. Christian writes, by the way, Mike, I'm, I don't know why I've never thought of this before. Um, I'm, I'm a slow learner. I'm, I'm going to try posting this week's emails as gists with links in the show notes and then as public gists. And if people want to go back and leave a comment – like maybe we missed something, they could go to the gist. It linked in the show I didn't notes. I think of that. I know. 
I just was doing it today. The only problem is I don't like the way it's wrapping the text. But that's a problem for me. Anyways, uh, Christian writes, uh, Hi there, I'm from Argentina and I've been working remotely for U.S. companies for about five years now. I'd like to hear uh, from you, I'm assuming he means you, Mike, if you have some experience working with remote people around the world. How do you feel with people that are trying to master a foreign language at the same time they're trying to communicate their work during a stand-up? Uh, he says, I have some experience working with people that talk other languages and I struggle to understand their English, but I would like to hear from you guys, like the point of view from an employer. I have another question from a different topic. All right. Well, let's stay, let's uh, let's handle one at a time. Uh, working with people around the world and the communication barrier. You have any thoughts that come to mind on that one? Yeah, I did it once a few years ago. We had some guys. Um, I was on a staff hog doing I believe I was doing iOS and Android or maybe I was just doing Android. And their entire backend team was actually out of Belarus. And a few of the developers there did not speak a ton of English. But honestly, it wasn't too bad because we all communicated in HipChat. This was before Slack was cool. So HipChat, for those who don't know, is like an older version of, of a Slack-like tool. And uh, via PRs and I think Bitbucket, but maybe it was GitHub. So it wasn't, wasn't too bad. I mean, good documentation really helped. Um, although I will say the Google Hangouts got rough because I spoke <laughs> way too fast for them uh -huh. and I could barely understand them. And everybody was trying to be very polite and very careful not to say, what the hell are you talking about? But yeah, there was a uh, definitely some barrier. Yeah. Uh, have you had experience in this area? Oh man, I wish I had a better story to tell you, but, um, yeah, I've, I've had some negative experience in this, um, when I was in um, a company that uh, would sell development services, what they were really selling is they managed the development and then they would uh, outsource it, which is not too uncommon even for for dedicated development shops. But who they chose to outsource some of their work to is um, – well, that's where we ran into issues. So um, there was definitely a language barrier and it sometimes – and this could have just been – the group think of the office. But a lot of us began to think that perhaps even the remote workers were leveraging the communication barriers and under-delivering based on being able to claim that we didn't understand you or that wasn't clear when it felt like it was pretty well understood in the calls and in the emails and in the tickets. Um, and so that bred a bit of uh, animosity between the team and the remote team because um, – I don't really understand. Maybe management wasn't – I don't – because I wasn't closely involved with the process. But I do remember the scuttlebutt and people bitching that, oh, I think they're blaming the language barrier. Uh, and I don't know if that really? was actually true or not. It may have been legitimately a language barrier. But that was the sentiment that began to spread around the office, which I think is pretty toxic. That's yeah. the craziest story I've heard about this ever. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, really. Yeah, really. Yeah, that, I, that was yeah. a thing. <clears throat> Definitely a thing. Um, and so I don't know who the burden is on. I mean, in my opinion, the burden's on like the project management uh, layer to get that right. Uh, and I hate to say the burden is on the person learning the language. But uh, in a way, they were, a, they were providing a service to a customer, right? We were outsourcing to them. Um, so it did kind of feel like they should have been – the burden was at least on them to make sure that the objectives and the goals were clear. But either way, it, it became a hostile relationship, which eventually they just pulled back from doing that altogether and went with more like one-off contracts with uh, developers that were like picked for that particular mm. job. 
And, you know, that's just that's just one company. Uh, he says, I have another question from a different topic. I would like to run away from the company that I'm in. It's draining my good practices and I feel stuck. The tricky thing is that I'm building an important project that I'd like to have as part of my CV. I've heard a bunch of letters to you from people in similar situations. I want to start something new. And if I'm feeling lucky in a position where I have some voice over the project. And if I, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> I got a little Google in there. He says, I am, if I am lucky in a position where I can have some voice over the project. Maybe the real problem is my PM and DevOps, but I can't change that. What I'm trying to say is, is it only me or is it reality that in order to progress as an engineer, you have to change your job or build your own company? Uh, He says, by the way, I say engineer, but the cool reality is that my role is just a mere developer. I would like to hear Mike's feedback on that one. So does he have to change his career or his job or build his own company to really get to a point where he can have some say and voice and, you know, really what he wants is some ownership over the project? Yeah, wow, that's a, uh, yeah. that is a very complex, thick question. And a common um, one that's probably on a lot of people's minds, too. So I am not the best person to answer this question, and I will tell you why. And then I'm going to toss it to Chris, but okay. I, I will give you a answer. Okay. I only very, very briefly worked in a J-O-B job, right? I had two J-O-B jobs. Um, One was in college doing job applets. The other was in the game development industry. And then I was a contractor for, I'm sorry, one was at a startup. And then I was a contractor forever. Well, a game startup, I guess it's the same thing. Um, So I don't know. I can tell you that I did not feel at the time that... Working diligently up the corporate ladder was going to work, but I was in a five-person company where it was the guy above me was the CTO, and I was the junior, junior developer, right? So um, that was a long time ago. I know things have changed. Management structures have become more flat, but I don't have a tremendous amount of experience in the corporate world as an employee. I have a lot as a contractor, but companies, and I think Chris will definitely back this up, treat outside contractors very differently than they would um, employees. Oh, yeah. That's their, that's their luxury even. They, they, so, that's why that's part of the reason they want contractors. <laughs> right. So, I mean, yes, it is a good way to get more ownership over your work, but it's kind of like if you remember the old 90s uh, cartoon movie Aladdin, you know, you can, you can become a genie, but you have to come take all the costs too. Like there, there are time, ownership means both you get to decide what you're doing but it also means if the project goes south, you might be writing someone a check back as a refund, right? Or you might be in some sort of financial or legal jeopardy, right? So the, I, I would definitely take a sober look at where you are and say, is there a skill set, a platform, a framework, a type of technology I like working with and that I feel confident enough working with if you're, if you're going to go this independent route? Um, that I think that I can do this and actually you know, have satisfied clients. If you do and you want to take that risk, then then that is a very quick way to do this. You know, there's always consulting work. If you're not sure, if you're kind of really struggling to kind of get things out the door, you might want to look at another path. That's my two cents. Chris? Yeah, there is some wisdom to the old saying, uh, don't make your hobby a job because uh, then you'll end up hating your hobby. Uh, which is something that I've I've documented on the show that I have to like walk a tight line even here. I you know podcasting was a hobby. I did IT as uh, I should I should I should we call it IT, but I need to have something fancier because it would have a much cooler name now. Um, but uh, 
I left that to go do my hobby full time. Right? I, I would yeah. I'm going to say you did like yeah, DevOps did. before there was DevOps. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the reason why I say you know don't necessarily jump to the idea that you should turn your hobby into a job is because sometimes, depending on the right blend of personality traits, it can be really rewarding. To have a job that you go to, that you have a certain level of control over, you have a certain level of predictability over, and then you can go home and have your own hobby that you have full control over. The stakes are entirely different. It's much more enjoyable. This sounds really dumb, but uh, one of the reasons why there's no Star Trek podcast on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network is because I simply don't want to convert something that I like to do at home into a job. I don't want to be sitting there breaking down episodes of Star Trek while I'm watching them. I want to sit there and I want to enjoy them. Um, and it's sort of a personality blend question. That's why it's such a hard question to answer because some people are just not built to give a damn about other people's problems. I know for me, uh, I, I would have a really hard time, really, really hard time going back to a regular job. It would have to be the right job for me because when you're self-employed, the stakes are a totally different level of critical than they are when you are employed. And... Some people just simply need higher stakes to get the motivation to work their asses off. And some people need to have that full level of control. And so then maybe you're a blend to go off and work on your own. It really has to be something where you have to do some self-searching. And I think really the only way to discover it is to try it. Just move on. Try something for a bit. Do it while you have time. Do it if you, you know, while you still don't have as many obligations, those, all those kinds of things. It's a, t- it's a particularly hard question for us to answer because some people, I believe, are better suited to going to a regular job and then, and then having like a passion hobby at home that never becomes a source of revenue or very mild. Well, there's, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? No, it's I mean, probably really better. <laughs> it's probably healthier. Probably. Like it, it's interesting what you say, though, having the hobby because I – it kind of can work backward in a way too. Um, you know, for me, iOS development was very much a hobby when I was doing uh, the Java E web stuff way in the past. And now I really only do iOS if someone wants to hire me for a contract, right? I'm I'm more interested in well, Kotlin, i.e., Java and bots. Right. So you, you may find that over time, right, the thing you're being paid to do. You grow an expertise in it, you do it a lot, and you get quite good at it, but then you decide that on the nights and weekends or, or gaps between contracts, you want to work perhaps in an entirely different technology, maybe with a Raspberry Pi. Um, at least that's what I found, that you know the, the last thing I want to do if I have a gap between contracts is an iOS app. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Hopefully that helps, Christian. Richard writes in with a question to you, Mike. About Scala. He says, I've used Scala on my home projects in the past, but Kotlin is looking damn intriguing. Did you consider Scala for your Greenfield project that you're working on? And if so, what were the considerations that made you go with Kotlin instead? So did you consider Scala for your recent project? No. I I did not, no. Um, I've done a little bit of Scala in the past in the Java Play framework. I specifically wanted to go down this journey of learning Kotlin. Yeah. Um, the practical reason is Kotlin has the compile to native code functionality, which I am not aware if Scala does or doesn't, but that is something I may use in the future. But my, my primary goal was I was going to do this on the JVM. Uh, Kotlin has a lot of niceties, 
and I really wanted to learn. Wasn't Kotlin there an update I, this week, to, or at least since our last episode? Wasn't there an update to Kotlin too? I thought I saw that go by. Yeah, it's, it's in the subreddit. Yeah, there's a. It's it's not a. It's not an earth shattering update, but yeah, there was an update. It's it, 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 it JetBrains is actually moving the language at a at a pretty respectable pace. Yeah, yeah, that is a good way to put it. They're not sitting still, but they're not they're not moving at a rate that is unsettling either. It's good I, they, logical they, increment, they, incremental they, whatever. There's also a sad side effect because oh. Kotlin and Swift borrow ideas from each other. Or I won't say they borrow them from each other, but they share a lot of ideas, even though they are in many fundamental ways different. Um, it has regrettably made my Swift better. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know what? That's gr- isn't that isn't that interesting when you go to do something and the the completely different and like off the beaten path from what you normally do, and, and it makes the thing that you normally do even better. I have found that's actually pretty common. Yeah, I, I, especially with languages, right? I found that like writing writing Ruby, even though Ruby does some things that are mind bendingly unique to itself, can make you think about problems in a different way. And, and insert your language, Rust, Haskell, whatever your Uber, you know, Uber Graybeard languages of choice here. Yeah, that is. Uh, boy, that that should be. If we could uh, walk away with a Coder Radio tip. Uh, this week, it would be don't beat yourself up for going off and experimenting with something, greenfielding something, trying something like Kotlin when if your day job is .NET or your day job is whatever it might be, uh, you know, C Sharp, um, Swift, whatever it could be. Yeah, yeah, whatever. If that's your day job and that's where you should be focusing, don't beat yourself up for going off on a Kotlin tangent for uh, a couple of weeks because in my experience, it has paid off dividends on my day job. Whatever I do as a day job, when I go off on this crazy experiment, it tends to make the day job better. It's experience that actually even at first seems like it's a distraction ends up improving that work. And these are where things like code katas or like there's that codinggame.com, uh, hackerrank.com, all these kind of like code challenge sites or code. Ch- there used to be books. I mean, I know they don't, I don't know if they print them anymore, but I used to buy the, you know, 100 programming challenge books, right? And it would tell you what the expected output is and you'd write the language. These are great ways. And this, I mean, if we want to do like a succinct tip, if you're working, you know, 20, 40 hours a week in, let's say, Swift, um, maybe you should do a little bit of like, lunch break weekend mm. uh just even if you're just doing code katas in something different like something like a kotlin or a c sharp or what whatever it, it, it's almost arbitrary what language it is to be honest with you a lunch break coder i like that go learn uh speaking of things that you could learn on your lunch break linux academy our first sponsor this week linuxacademy.com slash coders is where you go to support the show it's a platform of, of advanced training tools that will increase your that will increase that will increase your skill set and encourage critical, th- critical thinking around all things Linux. And it's the core of the Linux utilities, the command line stuff, building network firewall rules, managing your kernel performance, all the way up to the really high-level cloud stuff like Azure and OpenStack and AWS. They give you hands-on scenario-based labs. That means, for me, predictable pricing. When I tried to experiment, experiment with AWS directly for training purposes, I, I drove up a $280 bill on accident. Uh, Linux Academy just bakes all of that in. They give you self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. And the best thing about Linux Academy is they have an escape hatch. Whenever you need real human being help, they have instructors standing by. The people that write the course material, like they pay real people and they're there to help you. They're there to help you. They're Linux Academy and they're here to help. They also have a course scheduler where you can set a time frame and stick to it. That is 
key. Fascinating. Think about that for a moment. When life gets a little busy, you can go over to Linux Academy and you can plug in your time availability, your day availability, and they'll make something that works for you. That's a huge feature. Huge feature. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. They have Learning Paths, which are a series of content that is planned specifically by their instructors for specific career tracks. They have study tools, comprehensive lesson audio, and study guides that you can download, use, and listen to offline. And they have iOS and Android apps for studying on the go and a community stacked full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. And something I just noticed on their Twitter feed, LinuxAcademy.com on Twitter, the CEO of Linux Academy... Anthony James sits down with one of Linux Academy's really super sharp course authors to talk everything about containers. They're from beginner knowledge to expert knowledge. There are many uses. It's a great talk. They have it up on YouTube. You can find it on their Twitter page, twitter.com slash linuxacademy.com. Anthony is a sharp cookie, and so is Trevor Williams, their course author. That is guaranteed to be a great talk. linuxacademy.com slash coders. Go sign up for a free seven-day trial and support the show. linuxacademy.com slash coders. linuxacademy.com slash coders. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Fascinating. I agree, Mr. Spock. I agree. Uh, okay, we just have a couple more emails. Like I said, it's a feedback special. And then we have some hoopla because I've been stalking Mike on Twitter all week. And, Fascinating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I've been uh, I've been preparing for you. I've been preparing for you. But uh, Josh writes oh. in. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I study up on you. So Josh writes in uh, with a question about deploying for the iPhone without a Mac. Yep. So his name is Josh, uh, and uh, he's writing for the high school newspaper club, or he's going to work for them at least. Which. That's great. A high school newspaper club having an app? That's awesome. Yeah. So he says, uh, we released an Android app on the Play Store. And a week after it was released, there have been many, many requests to make one for the iPhone. The issue is, I don't have a Mac on hand. Uh, The school has offered to give me a Mac. But the only downside to that is that it's probably locked down. And I can't install any software on there. Like Xcode. (laughs) Oh, man, it's so typical school that districts. That would be a problem. Yeah. yeah. So my question is, would I be able to write code on my Linux laptop and deploy to the Mac? Also including uh, also including that, would I be able to emulate an iPhone on the Mac? How hard is it to port my code over from Android to iPhone? And how is the learning curve coming from Java to Xcode? Oh, Josh. Okay. Boy, Mike, where do you want to start uh, with Josh here? Because he's got a lot of questions and uh, he's got an audience that wants his app on iPhone. So you have a number of problems. (laughs) Uh, Just to prevent the hate mail, yes, it is technically possible in theory to code sign an app without a Mac. It is not possible to publish it to the App Store. So I'm assuming your app is deployed via the App Store to your fellow students. He did say Play Store for Android devices, yeah. Right, so it's probably going to have to be the App Store. There are services that supposedly will do this for you that people have written in about. None of them looked particularly trustworthy to me, so I did not look into them. You also have a more fundamental problem in that you could, of course, like write a bunch of Swift, I guess, on an Ubuntu machine 
and copy pasta those files onto a Mac and run Xcode build and do everything from the command line. But then every time you want to test anything you write, you have to take it over to that Mac, right? So that's not really feasible. And you're going to have to be able to install Xcode, especially if you want the iPhone emulator. You're going right. to have well, to. Yeah, true. You have to at least install Xcode build. Now, there are actually like web-based iPhone emulators. That That's the smallest issue you have. Okay. Um, though they're, they're really not iPhone emulators. They're more like screen emulators. I would suggest one of two things. You could do like a PWA, a progressive web app, in which case you never need a Mac, right? So you would just put it on a site somewhere and tell people this is where you get the iOS app and show them how to save it to their home screen. I know it's not ideal, but I imagine high school students actually probably know how to do that. The other challenge, the other path is you have to convince your school's IT administrator to install Xcode on whatever MacBook he's going to give you. I can imagine that that is a Herculean task. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? It seems like if the IT staff is even semi-competent, they should understand that one. Well, but he's going to need admin access to do, like, code signing. I, there, there's, oh, boy. There's a lot of stuff that Xcode prompts you for the root password. So you would really need elevated permissions on that machine. Okay. Mm. Uh, Mm. Putting all of that aside, learning curve from the Android SDK to Cocoa Touch, uh, which which is uh, Cocoa Touch is the right name for the SDK you're talking about. Swift, I'm assuming you're your Android app in Java. Swift can be a little more intimidating than Java, I would think. But... You know, if you, if you're in high school and you manage to pump out an Android app, I think if you 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 know if you're diligent, use online resources, hell, email the show. I'm pretty sure you can you can hack together a Swift app, no problem. But really, if if getting the elevator permissions on the Mac is really an issue, uh, see if you can just do the PWA. That might be the best option for you. Hmm, okay, and um, what about? What about my question? Really, was going to be what about uh, breaking out? I mean, I can't imagine that they're custom writing the text and all of the articles for the Android app. It must be coming from some source, maybe an HTML page that's just being rendered on the Android app. I mean, how simple are we talking? Could this just be a web application? Could that's this... true. Is it already right? Are you already rendering a website? Yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that you, you maybe writing native apps for both platforms is ten times the work when it really could be a web page that you just focus on working great on mobile. I don't know though. Let us know, Josh. I would actually, uh, you know what? Please do follow up. Uh, and awesome that uh, a, a high schooler that's working on an app is listening to the show. We love that too. So uh, keep us posted, Josh. Joe writes in with our last email of the week. There you go. For all of you that were starting to fall asleep, this is one that kind of uh, follows on the Microsoft thread that we've had in the show last week. A lot of people liked the uh, trip to Microsoft stuff last week. That's awesome. Um, I uh, I may uh, chat with folks from Microsoft in the future uh, about stuff that is uh, particularly relevant to our audience. So stay tuned for that. Um, and uh, I wanted to also mention that I covered some additional clips on Linux Unplugged. So if you liked the Microsoft uh, interviews last week, I talked more about some of their open source ambitions and um, kind of an awkward spot they're in with Windows. Um, I don't. I won't say too much. Episode 236 of Linux Unplugged, Microsoft's big secret. 236 of Linux Unplugged if you want to catch that. So anyways, our last email of the week 
It comes in um, from Joe, and it's about Windows power users. He says, to all, I am a regular listener of Unfilter, Coda Radio, Linux Unplugged, User Air, and, of course, the Sunday Linux Action News, and occasionally TechSnap or BSD show when I see a topic I want to listen to. Well, first of all, he's got to bump that tech snap up to every week because it's a damn good show now. Damn good show. Um, so he says, is it, he says, it's fair to say I consume quite a bit of JP content. All right. I agree. You do consume quite a bit of JP content. Agreed. He says, and I've been hearing quite often, I assume from across the shows, that Windows isn't for power users. And I, I suppose we may have implied that. And maybe we haven't come out and said that directly, but maybe we have been implying that. He says, I develop in C Sharp on .NET Core. I SSH into Linux on DigitalOcean. I manage hypervisors and the VMs atop them. I record and edit video and audio on the same Windows 10 PC. The one thing Windows currently has is the edge on app support. I have deployed workstations for 3D rendering, pro audio, video production, and large-scale platform coding shops all on Windows. My question is this. If Windows isn't for power users, what is the workflow of a power user? He says, don't take me. I'm not trying to be negative. I love JB and his content. I just got to know. And I'm going to keep listening regardless. So what is – what do you think about this? Do we have a uh, Windows user bias on – and uh, are we anti-Windows uh, users on this uh, on these here shows? I, I don't see how we are. I took the freaking Windows 10 challenge, guys. <laughs> well, mean, what about this implication that Windows isn't a power user's OS, that you know power users need a Unix workstation with a bash command line? What about so that? So I think – I think he's mishearing me from a few episodes back where I said I need a bash command line. And maybe I didn't say it clearly enough for yeah. my workflow. Yeah. I need a bash command line. I think um, – uh, Maybe I th- not. I mean we do rack on Windows quite a lot. So I think when you look at all of the shows in totality, what you get is – you don't have a lot of really uh, unsophisticated new users using the Linux or BSD desktop. And um, so that gets reflected in our shows because generally if you're choosing to run a highly configured Linux desktop or even a highly customized Mac desktop, you're probably a geek. You know, you're probably a power user by nature. And so um, I, I guess we don't have a lot of Windows representation. I will say this. The Windows 10 challenge that Mike and I did weeks ago um, definitely left me with the feeling that it is absolutely still – a workstation operating system. I, I think we both were impressed. I, I mean, I know I was actually quite impressed with that HP Spectre I was using. To an uncomfortable degree, I was impressed, actually. Right. I was like, oh, we, crap. Did we call it the best <laughs> Linux distro, actually? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to piss off YouTube again, but hey. Yeah, well, especially when you put the chocolate terminal on there. Or no, that was the package manager. I forget what the terminal um, name was. When you put a new terminal, man- terminal on there. Yeah, yeah, yes. What was it? Was it PowerShell we were using? No, or? no, no. The, it was to replace the command prompt with a different, more modern, like OpenGL or DirectX accelerated. Oh, you were using something fancy. Yeah, I can't remember. What yeah, it was. made yeah. it you know made it feel like a modern terminal, like you would get on the Plasma or GNOME desktop. Um, and uh, I, I, and then I put a package manager on there, and then I had the sub. I had I had my modern terminal with the subsystem for Linux. I mean, I, I walked away feeling like. Uh, like, you know, like when you've had your sexuality challenged, like you have a brush with a dick and all of a sudden you're like, I might be a little bisexual. Like that's how I felt with Windows is like, I might like Windows a little more than I thought I did. I'm not quite comfortable with this. I got to so, reevaluate some stuff. So you're gay for Cortana? Uh, well, actually, Cortana is in the entire challenge. 
I, the worst I, part of the system. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just really did not like Cortana, I, and I just thought it took up way too much space, so I turned it off in the start in the start bar or whatever. But anyways, um, I'm gonna I'm working on this. I think it's a fair criticism to a degree, uh, Joe. So um, I am trying to work on it because the reality is we have a whole bunch of Windows users listening to these shows, a whole bunch, and uh, I I don't mean to make them feel like they're I don't know, like uh, judged or like they're not cool or they're not powerful. Because some of the some of the most clever system administrators I ever worked with just knew Windows inside and out. Like they knew how to make oh, you Windows. Have to be clever. Was, ooh, sorry. Oh, all right. Well, moving on. Anyways, thank you, Joe. Uh, and no, I don't think either one. I actually think it's whatever your power groove is. Um, I, I just recently just recently met a guy who uh, is a hell of a developer. I guess I can't really say where he's from. He wouldn't like that. But he's using elementary OS, which everybody considers like the new Linux user, a uh, newbie Linux distro. Which and, I don't get. It's stable. I mean, yeah, it's great, actually. <laughs> Having used GNOME 3 extensions, and I know people yeah. don't like when I wrap this, you guys should value stability a little more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, elementary OS is working on it. I'm really impressed with what they're doing for making a developer workstation. And then... Um, there's, they're getting a bunch of really cool tools in their app center and stuff. At some point, I, mean, I, I go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, at some point, you and I should, we should also chat about uh, a really interesting revenue model that they're taking to monetize apps on their platform. They, it's pay for what you want for the app, and then if you pay nothing, this isn't, this hasn't been implemented yet. This is coming down the road, but right now it's pay for what you want, and then of course you get free upgrades, and they're going to make a change in the next release in Elementary Juno. Where the applications that you've bought but never paid for will withhold updates. And you go, you go to the update page and all of your stuff gets updated. But the apps that you've never paid for will still be like in this like unpaid section, like at the top of the update list. And you can manually click the button and hit update and put a zero in and just update for free. And you can do that indefinitely. But by default, it won't automatically update them unless you go into the application center. You go there, you enter in zero dollars and hit enter every single time. Or you buy it once and then it will start updating. Interesting. So it's kind of like you have to affirm that you don't want to pay. Every yeah. Time. And the idea is being is you maybe bought you you grabbed the app out of the app center. Not, try it out. Yeah. Not sure if it was worth it because there's no trial. There's no demo. You just have to pay for it or grab it. So you you buy it or you you grab it for free because you're not sure if you're going to like it. And you then keep using it. So if you're using it and getting updates and you want those updates, it's obviously valuable to you. So their thinking is maybe that's the time to prompt for payment. That is an interesting idea, I think. That is, yeah, I'm not sure what I think. Think about that, like, on, like, the App Store, right, for the iPhone? You mean the thing of sorrow? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't that be interesting, though, is if Apple let you set a pay-what-you-want price or let you download for free and then charge on the first update, although they don't really have a UI for that. Because the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, it would be interesting though. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's something I'll watch, and maybe as they ship it out and users react, we'll talk more about it because it's, it's only in early development right now. Uh, we have we have some hoopla to get into because, like I said, I stalked you all week. So why don't we take a moment here and uh, mention Digital Ocean, who is the perfect sponsor for this show because if you're an expert you're a beginner you're working on your first app or your hundredth app and you want to try something out on some great infrastructure or you want to put it in production digital ocean is the perfect fit 
It's it's beautiful, fast infrastructure. It's great for development teams because it works with one person or across a large team. It's fast. It's secure. It's reliable. Predictable pricing. And you can deploy entire application stacks or just the core system and build on top of that. And it really has been built for developers. They have an easy-to-use control panel. I call it a dashboard. They call it a control panel. And an API that lets you spend more time coding and less time managing your freaking infrastructure. I love DigitalOcean's interface because they make it easy to deploy across eight different data centers, set up all of your DNS and your SSH keys, to do the whole pre-built application or just the single system, resize your droplets dynamically. And they've recently been messing around with pricing. And I, I got to say, uh, it's just gotten better. You know, a lot of companies will blow this and DigitalOcean nailed it. They now have flexible droplets. It's a new plan for $15. You can mix and match resources that are the most appropriate for your application. That's Great. Now, the standard droplets, like the ones that I use for everything, like the three cents an hour, have just gotten faster and better for the same price. They've just upgraded everything. You can go in and upgrade your existing droplets if you've already been a DigitalOcean customer. So get started. Go try out the tools, the guides, everything that can get you going faster. Go to DigitalOcean.com and create an account and then apply our promo code, CoderDigital. They also have a new quick URL you can go to, do.co slash coder do.co slash coder. And that preloads our promo code in there and lets them know you heard about it here. And I encourage you, if you think down the road you might be working with multiple people or you might want to transfer a system to a client, start with DigitalOcean. It makes things so much easier. Plus, they have great integration with so many different programs and management orchestration systems like Chef and Ansible. And we've talked about different ways you can deploy DigitalOcean droplets every single time you update on GitHub. It's such a great system. You can really explore different potential. You can, you can build something that is custom to you, or you can take advantage of lots of different open source projects. You can work seamlessly with your team, and you can use their super crazy fast infrastructure while you do all of it. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code CODERDIGITAL. SSDs for everything. 40 gigabit connections coming with the hypervisor. It's really something. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code CODERDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. So you have a – you linked to a story on your uh, tweeters about uh, the death of the junior de- developer – and why it actually is pretty bad for the industry and how it kind of it kind of is it's kind of a systemic problem you know the junior application developer was something that was pretty common back in the day and it was a great way for somebody to learn via mentors and other developers that are more senior to them um, but really now the problem has become uh, that people want all this experience you got to have uh like <laughs> somebody tweeted recently they wanted uh uh five years of experience with Kotlin or something like that in a resume that somebody... Yep. <laughs> yep. You know, it's these kinds of things that make it impossible for people to get started in the industry. And then on the other end, the problem is, well, our senior developers' time is so valuable. They're too busy. They don't have time to mentor junior developers. Um, and uh, there's this Medium post that we'll link to in the show notes. And they say, you know, that's a bunch of crap. That's a bunch of crap. And it's a bunch of hand-waving that uh, sort of just tries to obscure the fact uh, that a lot of their time is spent and wasted on things like meetings. And there's a lot of cost that goes into meetings that could be spent on development. That's something I think probably aren't, people aren't too surprised by. But this post makes the case for why junior developers are kind of critical to the health of the development industry. 
And uh, that kind of resonated with me. You know, they made a they made a really good case for why you need someone in the junior development position in the entire ecosystem to, for the whole development ecosystem to stay healthy. That is a compelling argument. Um, and it tries to make the case that companies should start hiring junior developers again to invest time in developing programs that help senior developers work with them and mentor them. So like companies, that's where they need to focus some of their time and slack is giving senior developers the training and tools to mentor junior developers. And and I don't know. I don't know how you do that. But that's the case that the article tries to make. I don't know. You, you're the one that tweeted this. <clears throat> uh, and, and, and they say, yeah. too, that they, like these crazy resumes and all of that aren't a sign that a company's broken. It's a sign that the entire industry is broken. So I am actually – I tweeted this because it was something I read and I was thinking about. I'm, I'm pretty conflicted on this. Hmm. On the one hand, I definitely understand – what the writer is saying and and i agree right like i got my first start as a you know junior java developer doing my little applet thing polluting the internet it was a good time but i feel like in some fundamental way the market particularly for those kind of companies which that was like a marketing research consultancy and they don't even exist anymore so it doesn't matter but they were basically like you'd hire them to write your kiosk software that ran in basically ie in a java applet right oh like yeah awesome that's what they did. Uh, honestly, they're a dev shop, right? But they're like a very spe- specific dev shop to that. They're gone now because, you know, that's just how the cycle works. They, but even back then, I remember they had like big budgets to do things. And a team was like 10 people with like a dedicated QA person and a yes. dedicated PM yes. and account rep. And like two senior devs, the three intermediate devs, and like me and two other, you know, UI monkeys, for lack of a better term, right? That's been compressed now. Now, now a team is like a senior dev, right? <laughs> right. Who who and a P- is expected and a PM. to be and a PM, and maybe they separate front and back end, but usually they you're expected to be a full stack now and do the whole. No, thing. you just grab something open source for that. Or yeah, you know, just ah, get get a Docker container and like you know just toss it up there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it is what they do. That is what they do. So, like, and like, I have tried somewhat recently to hire, you know, people, and you know, as a person in this industry who has a podcast, I want to say that the author is right, and this is all terrible, Chris. And we should go back to the days of apprenticeships and junior developers. I had teachers who helped me when I was starting out along the way, and we should pay it forward. But as someone who, you know, I talk to people who would prefer to just contract work out to me, and I have found that it is very hard to support junior developers in an economical way that isn't just losing money well you see that really sucks because um you got to get experience somehow well i I think that's what like microsoft is for no i'm kidding Uh, Uh, (laughs) let them let them spend the money seriously though that's what like you know our first uh emailer who's working at the larger company and is kind of bored i almost feel like that's what those jobs are for now and they're harder to get yeah but no wonder why the industry no wonder why the industry wants all these h1s 
Well, I mean, I, it's one of those situations where I think everything is connected, right? You have these crazy compressed budgets right. that put pressure on inter, in, on small and medium shops who then just, like, don't want to hire junior people because, you know, and I would be interested to hear from, like, other contracting folks, like, how, how their life works. But if we have, like, one two-week period or even, like, one sprint, one week where a client doesn't feel completely happy, that's probably the end of the project for us because there's just so much competition and people's budgets are so tight. Jeez. Um, well, and, and you know, you know that's, that's rough. You, it, that is a rough, tight, really kind of uh, by the skin of your teeth market to be in. That's, it, that's it business really on the is. internet. That's business on the internet, though. That's, that, well, I mean, podcasting can't be. I mean, I know because yep. I see the numbers isn't much better, yeah, right? That is that is what it's like to work on the internet these days. It's you know, I mean, I remember, and I'm sure you and I can old man out on this. You know, projects used to be at least six months, right? You, you had like a, a six oh, month yeah. engagement. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's like if we don't produce like results in two to four weeks, we're I mean, like automatically fired. The, the beginning <laughs> of my the beginning of my quote unquote career would have been multi year. I mean, multi-year, multi-year, easy, 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 easy. It was just assumed if it was a big enough company and a big enough project, this was a, this was a, cause you, you know, six months just to get all the stakeholders on board with the idea. But do you remember like plans of records, like sitting there with, you know, just for like two or three weeks going through documentation and specking out the entire project? Yes. Yes. That way I spent a lot of time back in the office working those things up a lot of time. Yeah, and and now that's something that most uh, potential clients expect the vendor to actually, if they do it at all, do it during the sales process yes. and eat that as a cost of acquisition. Yes, that is that that is now the sales process. Yep. Right. So th- there's like, I I I tweeted this article because I really wanted to agree with it, but you know I don't want to be a hypocrite. I could not practice what this writer preaches and be in business yeah, for very long. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I'm at the point now. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm at the point where I couldn't either. Hmm. Well, you're right. Maybe it is for the larger companies then. All right, well, let's shift gears and let's talk about testing for a moment. Are you up for that or do you want to save this? Because uh, this is a great post over at this uh, website I've never heard of. It's probably a Russian troll farm, uh, DominicM.com. Does that sound familiar to you? Not good. It does. Let's see. Did, did uh, Bob Mueller comment? <laughs> <laughs> He's always got his eye out there for it. And, uh, and Mr. Dominic, uh, where's Kotlin from? We've been corrected. It's not from Russia. <laughs> we don't care, the Justice Department. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so I've like got this. the bug. Yeah. You the testing bug. The testing bug, because I've decided to not ship crap. What a, what a novel idea. Ooh. You know, I mean, it's that's one thing to say it, but... Uh, like, budgets are tight, time is tight, right. there's shortcuts to be had, you know. Right, so, yeah, so this is actually a good segue. This dovetails really well with the conversation we were having about junior developers. So the title of the article is Foot in the Door Testing, Foot in the Testing Door. I have been trying to convince a number of clients that they should pay me to write automated tests for their systems. Yeah. That has gone... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I know. In a direction. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's uh. Here's the door, Mike. Thank you. Yeah. Um. So, I got to thinking, like, 
why is it so obvious to me for our internal software that we should have tests, yet the people who are spending, you know, not insignificant money don't want to have the security? And I realized something, and it is all the Ruby hipsters' fault. Oh, man. Nice. Seriously, the the religion around like 100% test coverage and TDD has made testing kind of a joke, almost like agile. This is not what I write in the article, but for the show, I want to kind of draw a parallel because I want it to be a little more neutral in the article. You know, back in the day, Chris, back in our day, Mm -hmm. agile really was something, right? Agile like made a lot of sense, right? You you know, you did have that three-week period of writing the plan of record and the battled waterfall. It was a revolution. It was a revolution. It was awesome, right? Like a two-week sprint where you leave me the hell alone. I mean, it was, it yep. was great. Yep. I could get some work done. Yep. And then something happened. And what I think happened is a bunch of consulting shops, and I'm using consulting both in the term of dev shops, but mostly like business, processy, like McKinsey-type people, uh, started selling Agile as like a product, right? Like Agile in a box. And I'm sure... We all know what I'm talking about here. And, and also it becomes, a, it becomes a buzz term now with Agile baked into the process. Yeah. It's, uh, I think TDD became something like that for the Rails community where it, was, it became such a buzzword Right, testing in general became such a buzzword that your project manager client side just saw it as a twenty to twenty five percent tax on the price they negotiated yes, with you. Yes, yes, yes. I completely agree. And basically a backdoor way to up your bid. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh, this is where Fine. they're getting their margin. Okay, this is where they're trying to make their money back because you know Steve negotiated them down. Steve, I'm making it up in honor of Uncle mm-hmm. Steve Ballmer. Yep. But then I noticed like some patterns here. Projects where you don't do any testing tend to have higher costs over their lifetime. Sure. Maybe it's not front and and I will fully admit that as a vendor I would much prefer a larger sale sooner, but it it, it seems like because you know your vendor unless he's really stupid is not going to like fix things for free. Right? He's He's just not going to, especially if it's things that, you know, evolve over time and are kind of weird, um, Mm. didn't want to pay for. Mm. So I got in this way of thinking, okay, I do not want to ship things that are bad to people, but I also need to, you know, feed my kid. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can't like throw a gauntlet on the ground and say, if you do not accept some level of testing, I am going to not take your project. Right. Because eventually, yes, they know it everybody, right? It's just, it's a, it's a thing that can't happen. So I said, well, what are their concerns? Well, number one, they, they I think, correctly believe that 100% test coverage is kind of wasteful. They also don't want to hear about this dogmatic stuff um, because it, it's just so overplayed, right? I mean, go on YouTube and there's a bunch of guys with MacBooks ranting about testing and how, you know, you're a bad developer. I had one guy, this dude was like some Australian dude, tell me that, well, writing tests is the Rails developer's job. I'm like, mm, but not if they didn't pay for it. <laughs> like, sorry, <laughs> you got to allot the hours. 
so what I came down to is what is the minimum bang for their buck? Meaning what is the minimum buck, so maximum bang for their buck actually. Okay. And I came up with simple integration tests. Now integration tests are testing the areas where your software components meet and software systems connect to other systems. So this would be like REST API endpoints, um, different modules internal to your application talking to each other. If you're doing iOS, like your core core data layer would be an integration point, right, to your, you know, to the rest of your app. And running a, I, I will admit, very aggressive policy of like every time you commit and push or every time you push to the server, even on a feature branch, you run something like Bitbucket Pipelines to run all these tests and you stop what you're doing if they don't all pass. So a very much a red-green refactoring policy. But what I found is it makes it low enough that I can do one of two things, either like hide the cost of testing and something else, as we talked about a few weeks ago, yeah, or just tell them. But it's a low enough number that it, they they say yes because you know nobody wants to get called at two in the morning because something crashed right because there's some <laughs> but no one wants to pay twenty percent more so this is a relatively new thing I've been doing and the reason is because for the last like year I've been trying to sell people testing they've all just been saying no like flat up absolutely not I'm hoping that one of two things happens. Over time, these folks see less issues with their software as as we go on from us compared to other vendors. That they actually buy into this and you know let us cover a few more mission critical cases. But also, if we could just raise awareness while at the same time embracing the the very fair objection of these uh, business folks that you know what this hundred percent test coverage thing is kind of a, a, a crock right you it, it's, I, I hate to say it that hard of course it is ideally better but in the world of budgets and where people like get managers get paid on going under their budget not over it's it, it's a tough sell yes so yeah. this is a more moderate road to do that and of course, my samples are on Kotlin because I'm yeah. you know, a history. Got to get a little taste of it in there, right? A little taste of Kotlin. The taste of Kotlin. Uh, that's great. I, I I I like the journey on this one from uh, total like, boy, I'm I'm really taking it in the ass on this. To hey, I think I figured out a way to kind of subtly make our product better, and hopefully that'll pay off long term with customer retention and additional contracts. Um, and and you're able to do it in a way that isn't such a huge financial investment for you that it makes it unsustainable for the company, which is great. That's like nailing it right there. So well done, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I, I would, again, be curious to see if other folks are doing something similar to this um, or if I'm just some crazy old guy. You know, <laughs> I probably know. a little bit of uh, column A and a little bit of column B, Mr. Dominic. Well, uh, so if people are interested in what you're doing, maybe they uh, like that idea. Where should they go to find out more or maybe uh, keep chatting with you about it? Uh, they can find me on DominicM.com or at Dumanuku on Twitter. Magic, magic, magic. Now, we would love to have you join us live. We'll be a little bit wompy next week just because uh, we're going to start recording um, later in the week because Mike's going to be at the O'Reilly Conference, which I always forget the name. It is in New York. And if you want to go... Software Architecture Conference. Software Architecture Conference. Maybe go uh, give Mike a high five. Sneak him a beer. Uh, I'm not kidding. I have legitimately on multiple occasions been in an event and had listeners come up with like a beer snuck in the inside pocket 
Uh, I had one listener who had a um, a wagon with beer in it. I mean, there's all you never know. So if you want to like sneak over to Mike and just say hi or slip him a handshake or a beer, you can do it. He's going to be there at that conference. Uh, you can Google that and get more information. So we'll be a little wonky next week, a little wompy for our recording schedule. But um, <clears throat> there's one more thing I should probably kind of sneak in here is uh, there could be an old friend coming back to the network very soon over at Jupiter Broadcasting. I'm just going to say that something's in the works. Something's in the works. Oh, and also I'll mention this. I'm going to be at scale March 8th. Uh, yeah, March 8th through the 10th scale in Pasadena, California. So if you're going to be in the uh, Southern California area and want to say hi at scale in about two to three weeks, I think from about this recording, I'll be there. And uh, last but not least, I'll just give a plug for to our uh, feedback page because lots of great feedback really powered this episode and we love getting the questions. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Choose Coda Radio from the drop down or you can email Coda Radio at jupiterbroadcasting.com directly and follow the whole damn network at Jupiter Signal. And uh, you can follow me at Chris L-A-S. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. Links to everything we talked about over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And we'll see you right back here sometime, sometime next week. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for that. And join us live at jblive.tv. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. Go subscribe. And see you then. See you then.